0: Uh, We're reading from John 1, 19 to 34. And, yeah. Now, this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you call yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet I am the voice of one calling in the wild wilderness. Make straight for the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who have been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But then among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to the ward, uh, coming to the ward, coming toward him, and said, "Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one." Did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one.
1: Thanks, Keegan. Well, evening folks, it is great to see you, and I want to begin by saying that I reckon there are few jobs worse in the world than being the support artist at a concert. Now, I reckon it'd be really exciting to be selected to play, but when they hit the stage, they know that no one has come to hear them play, and everyone is hoping that they will get off as soon as possible. I mean, I like broods, right? And I did not mind hearing them play before Taylor Swift. But I was getting twitchy by the time they got to their third song. And it was because my expectations were focused on someone else. My hopes were not for a great broods concert, but for a great T-Swizzle concert. And as each minute passed, it was getting closer and closer to my bedtime. Now, of course, once supporting artists are done, the expectations grow, don't they? The conversations quieten down. The stage becomes the focus for everyone. And you wait for that moment when the lights go out. Because when they do, you know. The person who is the focus of your joy in that moment is coming. Now, I... Paint that picture because as we continue on in the Gospel of John, starting at verse 19 tonight, we find ourselves listening to a support artist who is playing their final song. His name is John. Not the same John who wrote the Gospel that we're reading from, but another John an arresting prophetic figure who's dressed in camel's hair and who is eating and keeping himself sustained with honey and locusts. He's been doing the rounds of cities and towns and villages all around the Jordan River, preaching powerfully. And his message has been pretty simple. It's just repent, turn back to God because the Messiah is coming. God's king is on his way. And clearly, clearly his message was persuasive because enormous crowds of people, including we're told the whole city of Jerusalem, came out to listen to him and be baptised by him in the Jordan River. Uh, but here's the thing. You see, that's great. But here's what I want you to learn tonight. It's that popularity does not determine importance. It's hard to imagine the scene, but it's not hard to imagine what motivated the crowds to come out after John. Uh, For those living in Jerusalem and the surrounds, at this moment in history, uh, they have a very ordinary community. They're small, they're mediocre, they're under the power of Rome, but they have extraordinary expectations. Extraordinary expectations of their God. For he has promised them that he would come and rescue them and triumph over their enemies. And they have these expectations because that's exactly what God promised he would do. Indeed, if we were to go back into the Old Testament, we'd see prophecy after prophecy and prediction after prediction of God saying, I'm sending a king and this great king is going to lead you back to glory. And now here comes John the Baptist. And he's fueling their hopes and fueling their dreams. And so the crowds come out. But so do the powerful and jealous religious leaders. John was so popular and therefore appeared so important that they no doubt felt threatened by him. So they too go out and they ask him, who are you, John? Give us some understanding. And John replies in verse 20 saying, Uh, the whole of verse 20 says he did not fail to confess uh, but confess freely i am not the messiah Uh, you can see it there he's utterly clear isn't he i'm not your messiah i'm not your expected king i know all of the old testament expectation is at the forefront of your mind you're waiting for this one in the line of david Uh, but just see there in verse 20 the repetitive language that john uses in this scene he says i did not fail to confess But confessed freely, John says. So if he's not the expected king, if he's not the main event, people are wondering who are you? Uh, Are you the supporting artist? Now the next series of questions that come in verse 21 uh, down into verse 22 seem a little odd to us. But in the Old Testament there were expectations that these supporting artists or these forerunners would come before the Messiah. In Malachi 4 we read that Elijah will come. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 we read that a prophet will come. So perhaps they're thinking that this baptizer is one of those people. But he says no and no. And that leaves the question as in desperate Confusion. Now look at me at verse 22. Finally they say to him, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now John only answers here though in a way that serves to pour petrol on the fire of expectation among the people. He says there in verse 23, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. It's a little prophecy from Isaiah, and John is essentially saying here, Your king is coming. The Lord, the Messiah, he's coming. The hope of Israel is coming. Uh, He's saying, I am simply the support act, I'm just a signpost. There might be big crowds all around me here, but I'm not the one worth paying attention to. No, there is someone else. And he's on the way. Well, that's not enough for these Jewish leaders. Now the Pharisees, an extremely zealous sect of the Jewish leaders, they want to know. And they are inquisitive about whose authority John speaks under. And so they say to him from verse 24, the Pharisees who've been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah and not Elijah and not the prophet? And John's reply again points away from himself with incredible humility and he elevates the one who is to come. He says, I'm just the water guy, but there is one you seek and he's here. Even though the crowds have come out and I look popular, I'm not important I'm nothing compared to the one who is coming. I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals, which is something even a slave would do. I'm just a supporting artist, John says, for the glorious, promised king, the chosen one. And look what he says there in verse 26. And this is important. He says, this king is among you and he'll soon be revealed. And indeed he is. Just 24 hours later, we read this in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he proclaimed, Look! Now, in the English, it just sort of looks like look. And it's as though you're on a bushwalk with your family. I'm sure you've been on many bushwalks with friends and family recently. Someone's gone, Look, there's a rock. Or, Look, there's an interesting flower over there. But but I think that misses the point a little bit. The look here is not just a casual engagement with something. Here is John, the baptizer, getting revved up. And and this is nothing casual about that. He's saying in an arresting fashion, Wow, look with me here. Look at what we've found. For this is the moment. The concert lights are going down. The support act is disappearing off the stage and the important one you've been waiting for has arrived. And so John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's pointing at Jesus because Jesus is now out in the open. He's among the crowds and everything going on in this scene is absolutely startling. It's startling because while John was an arresting figure, Jesus is just an ordinary bloke. He's just walked out of the crowd. And if he's the expected king, well, he's got no weapons, he's got no army, there's nothing of note about him. But here's John saying, It's him, he's here. And if they were expecting a king, he'd hardly have been the first cab off the rank, even in a schoolyard pick. That's not the only startling thing, because the way John has described Jesus is startling. He describes him as a lamb. And immediately, uh, those who would have heard would have thought about the lambs in the temple that were sacrificed day by day as a reminder of the seriousness of sin. The lambs whose death was a reminder that sin deserved punishment and that God was in the business of engaging with his people. That's not the end of the startling nature of verse 29. Indeed, it's startling again because this man is God's lamb. And does that mean God needs to bring a sacrifice? That, that God is bringing a sacrifice into the temple for sins? Why would God be bringing a sacrifice to the temple, that would have been very odd to their ears, startling. And it's startling finally because of the people whose sins this lamb takes away. His focus is not just Israel, his focus is not just the so-called people of God at this time, but John says there that he's come to take away the sins of the world. Now, of course, this side of the cross, it's easy for us to miss how extraordinarily startling this moment would have been. We know that the Lord will lay on him the sins of us all, and we can rejoice that he is a sacrifice given graciously. It is an act of amazing grace that Jesus was given to take our sins and to bear them away so that we will hear in a few chapters time That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. But for those listening in this moment, their extraordinary expectations of God are, are bursting like bubbles before their very eyes. Not because God has deceived them, but because their vision of God's king And their vision of God's victory is too small and too self centered. They have these extraordinary expectations of God that He would come and rescue them and triumph over their enemies. But the vision John casts is grander and greater. The work of Jesus is going to be more magnificent than anything they can imagine because God has plans that stretch beyond Israel to the world and beyond victory now to victory in eternity. But tragically, they miss the lot. Whatever they are expecting of God, it's clearly not this Jesus who's just walked out of the crowd. And so what we see is Jesus, but there's no fanfare, no cheering, no crowd. It's as though John's words and testimony just create an enormous silence. And if we just sneak peek into the next section, we see that Jesus draws just about the same crowd as the Tokyo Olympics opening ceremony. And the one about whom there is such frenzied expectation appears to be completely ignored. And despite the crowds around John and John's enormous popularity, it does not translate to Jesus, to the important one, the chosen one of God. Indeed, we're told nothing of their response because there is no response. There is no word. Things just go on, but there in their midst stands God's chosen one, the one who will baptize, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And it's startling and bizarre. The crowds came out to be baptized by John, but no one appears to be following Jesus. The support actors left the stage and the Messiah is here, the King is here, but it appears that no one cares. And it'd be incredibly strange even to our ears if we'd not read What we saw last week in chapter 1 from verse 9. Do you remember verse 9? The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. This is Jesus. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. It's incredibly strange, but friends, also somehow, this whole situation is not strange at all. Indeed, this whole scene resonates deeply with me. And perhaps it resonates deeply with you as well. You see, as a Christian, I often find myself in John the Baptist's shoes. I'm the one calling out, Behold, the Lamb of God! He is Jesus! He's come to take away the sins of the world, your sins, my sins. He is glorious. The people who need Jesus, the people I love, the people I pray for, the people I long to see transforms through the grace and mercy of Jesus, they're constantly gripped by anything and everything except Him. And when you stop to consider all the people and things that our family and friends who are not yet believers are gripped by, all the things they long for, all the things they yearn for, all the things they have expectations of, it is a tear-jerking list. Just think of it like this. Did you know that 9 billion times, 9 billion times, people have clicked on this one YouTube video, to watch a couple of kids go baby shark, do-do-do-do-do over and over again. Do you know that right now there are 120 million people hanging out for Charlie D'Amelio's next TikTok? We're living in a time when the inane is crucial and the crucial is ignored. And as I look around, I want to shout out to the world, Behold, the Lamb of God. He's King. He's Lamb. He's taken away your sin. He's come for you and for the world, and his name is Jesus. And yet I know that my words would just hang in the air like John's words. Indeed, it feels more and more like people have no expectation of God these days. They've completely sidelined even the reality of God. Completely. Though the world was made through him, the world does not recognize him. Though the world's sins were taken by the Lamb of God, the world doesn't care. Two hoots. So what do we do as Christians? Do we give up? Do we make our faith private? Do we just treasure Jesus for ourselves now and hope that we don't come under attack or persecution or too much criticism? Well, I don't think that's the right pathway to take. So tonight I've got a word for believers who are tuning in. And a word also for those who are not yet believers. But first, for the believer. I want you to hear this. That popularity does not determine importance. Don't be discouraged by a world that has little time for Jesus. For the world that ignores him cannot dethrone him. Jesus cannot be cancelled and Jesus cannot be sacked. Jesus is on the throne and the saviour of all who believe uh, is coming. Later in the gospel we'll hear these words come out of his mouth. He will say, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So do not be discouraged. If you are there tonight and you're the only one in your family who trusts in Jesus, or there is just a few of you, I want to encourage you to persevere because Jesus is still king. He is on the throne and it is worth it for eternity. Likewise, if you're the only one in your friendship group at school, if you're the only one who trusts in Jesus, the only one who's part of youth, part of what's going on here persevere don't give up because he's worth it and what he has in store for you is greater than any earthly treasure and don't give up on jesus because he has given you a family of believers who love you and want you to grow as a wholehearted disciple of jesus and friends pray Pray that as the news of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is proclaimed, that God would move in hearts as he has promised to do. I hope you've been working through your Share Life journal. You've got beginnings of a list of names. Perhaps your growth group will work on that this week. Pray for those people. Pray down your list. Pray for them regularly. And we know that God promises that he will move in hearts. The news that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is just as relevant today as it was then. That's why we do share life. So persevere and pray. Rest assured that the popularity of Jesus does not determine his importance for this world. Now, for those who are here tonight who are not yet believers, I have a word for you as well, and it's this. Popularity does not determine importance. If you're with us today and you're not yet a believer, then I want you to know this. There is a God who has stepped into this world, and his name is Jesus. And he stepped into the world to clear the way for you to step out of the world with hope and joy. For we all know that this life is not all there is. But many just sort of stop there and refuse to engage with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Many find themselves in confusion or denial about the whole thing. And neither is a safe place to be. But there is good news. And it's this. That Jesus came as the Lamb of God, to take away your sin and my sin. Lots of people, hundreds listening in today, have believed in him and found assurance. The assurance of sins forgiven and eternal life granted. Sure, thousands more do life without him. But popularity doesn't determine importance. If you want to do life well now and into eternity, it's time to stop focusing on the support acts, on what you can see and touch, on what you can smell and hear. It's time to engage with the main game. It's time to meet Jesus. And we would love to help you do that. Get in touch with us via the website or Facebook or wherever you can. We'd love to help you meet him. Well, friends, we're all going to meet the king of the world face to face in the end. And to those whose sins he has taken away, he will be friend. To those who still bear their own sins, he will be foe. So at the last, who will Jesus be to you? Will he be the Lamb of God? who's taken away the sins of the world. How about we pray? Our great God and heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your amazing grace. You have sent the Lord Jesus to be the conquering king and he has conquered over sin and death, my sin, the sin of the world. And Lord God, we pray that you would help Those who trust in him even now to persevere and pray. For those who are not yet believers, Lord God, I pray that you would help them to push through the inane to what is urgent and important, that they might meet Jesus, come to know and trust him as Saviour and Lord. And we thank you for your amazing grace. Amen.
2: Oh, we're back with another great Slido Q&A. We didn't even mention Slido, but everyone's I, I so totally good. I forgot to
1: mention Slido, <laughs> yeah. but we, we had so many people already hooked yeah. in with the super poll, yeah, which true. I knew a grand total of zero of the answers of the last two, but I did guess <laughs> because it was not the last book, so it couldn't have been the Horcruxes. But hey, look, power of deduction.
2: There you go. Hopefully you know more of these questions.
1: (laughs) I think that these might be more in my sweet spot, right? So we'll see what happens.
2: (laughs) Great. Well, we'll start you off uh, with a question from Naomi. Yeah. Who asked, why does John the Baptist say he didn't know Jesus when they were cousins (laughs) slash relatives?
1: Yeah, that is an excellent question. Uh, If you've got your Bible, let's just have a look at uh, where John the Baptist says that again. Uh, I think it's verse 31 to 33. I'll just read that bit again. Uh, Indeed, so I'll read actually from verse... Well, yeah, I'll just read. Verse 29, here we go. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He'd already said that. I myself, he says in verse 31, did not know him. But the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony: I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now I take it that essentially what uh, um, is being said when it's when John says I didn't know him, saying I didn't know him as Messiah. I didn't know him as uh, the king who was to come. And it's clear, isn't it, from verse 32 and 33, uh, that it was only when Jesus was baptised that then John saw and heard from God that it was when the Spirit came on Jesus like a dove that he went, oh my goodness, that young man, who's a bit younger than uh, John, not by much, uh, but this young cousin of mine, who I have no doubt spent time with and no doubt been in relationship with in some way, shape or form, well, he is actually the Messiah. So in a sense, John is using this language here as he does throughout this whole section to emphasise his humility and just how low he is. Despite the big crowds that were coming out to John, he's sort of a whole time self-deprecating in his humility and in his words and the things that he says to sort of even say, even though he's my cousin, I didn't know it. And so now he wants to proclaim it to the world. He is the one that all our expectations have been on. Uh, It's all about Jesus. So yeah, I think that's how I would understand it, particularly in light of verse uh, 32 and 33 where he says, I didn't know until God had told me not only to baptize, but that this is the one. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's really helpful that he's talking about Jesus' identity as the Messiah, rather than just um, sort of
1: like, yeah, I never knew my cousin. Jesus, if the I cousin, long lost <laughs> relatives or something. Yeah, absolutely.
2: <laughs> Great. Uh, well, our next question says. Why did John baptise people before announcing that Jesus was Messiah? Mm. Were people falsely baptised if they didn't believe Jesus was the chosen one once revealed?
1: Yeah, that's another excellent question. Uh, We're going to go over to Acts chapter 19. So if you've got your Bible, come over to Acts chapter 19. And what we see in Acts 19... Uh, is a situation where people are suddenly asking questions about what's going on with the baptism of John and now people being baptised in the name of Jesus. So let me read uh, from Acts 19. Uh, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, and that is in Jesus. So on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because it then looks like people have been baptized twice, and they were baptized twice. John's baptism is not the equivalent of what we might do when we baptize someone today indeed john's baptism was a baptism where people were coming forward as an indication or as with commitment to repent before god Uh, it was a call of john you know he is the one who is the voice in the desert make way for the lord and so he's calling people to come forth and repent and ready themselves for the arrival of the chosen one But that baptism wasn't a baptism acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Saviour. It was a baptism acknowledging perhaps their sinfulness, the need to repent, and that God's King was indeed coming. There's a whole lot of things I could say there around there being all sorts of baptisms. Often people would baptise themselves, and baptism wasn't an uncommon thing. But when Jesus came, and we came to a point where people were just baptised once into his death, Well, that's when everything changed. So Acts 19 reflects that. And so it's not that John's baptism was sometimes baptising people to error, but that John's baptism was actually a different baptism to a Christian baptism. You might say it's a pre-Christian baptism.
2: Cool. So we can be confident now that one baptism is great.
1: One baptism is enough. Because how many times did Jesus die on the cross, Rach?
2: I think once. Yes.
1: So how many times should you get baptised, Rach? Once. Correct. There you go. I'm asking you the questions now. (laughs)
2: Well, our final question, Uh, of course, you'll be around later in the week with Sermon Extra. Sermon Extra
1: will come probably on Tuesday afternoon.
2: There you go. So if you had questions that weren't answered, stick around for that. That'll be great on Facebook. Uh, But this is going to be our last question for tonight. How do we lovingly slash diplomatically tell the people in our lives just how vitally important Jesus is without boring them or going over their heads?
1: Yeah. Uh, That's an excellent question, a great application question for us to land on tonight. I I think what I want to focus on uh, is that word, tell, in that question. That sometimes, in actual fact, the way that you can tell people that Jesus is so vitally important is to show people that Jesus is so vitally important to you. So I I think there's some simple things, uh, like actually uh, showing people that you are active in relationship with God. So if you have a friend or a family member in need who's not yet a believer, offer to pray for them or tell them that you are praying for them uh, to God. Uh, If uh, there is opportunity for you to share what difference God makes to your life and what difference it makes uh, that you know that your sins have been washed away by the Lamb of God, uh, then that's an opportunity to share that uh, and to show people by the way you live by the things you do, by the way you care, by the way you love, uh, that Jesus is actually the most important person and the most important uh, factor in your life. And often that, I think, is the best way to actually then be telling people that Jesus is so vitally important. I think recognising too, um, I've learned this from Elliot over the last 18 months, is that there's no silver bullet when it comes to evangelism and mission. It's not like Elliot or me or Rach or someone is going to tell you the exact words that you need to say so that person is going to believe in Jesus and have everlasting life. Uh, Sometimes it is a slow burn work and it requires uh, a lot of prayer. And I want to use a word I used uh, earlier on this year and that is I think that too we need to come into people's own worlds with a measure of curiosity, and not just sort of jump in and say, everything you believe is wrong, you know, think something else, but actually be genuinely curious about the things that your friends, family, work colleagues believe and think, and, and inquire of them. How's that working out for you? What do you really believe? What's the evidence for that? Not in an aggressive way, but in a genuinely curious fashion that just helps you get to know them Hopefully they'll get to know you and you'll be able to show them the love of Christ in the context in which you have those relationships. Again, much more could be said there, but I think uh, that's probably some things that I'd be thinking about.
2: Yeah, that's helpful and especially great to be thinking about in the lead up to Share Life Sundays as lots of us might be thinking about invitation, how we can show that Jesus is important to us and so that's why he should be important to other people. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Nigel. Thanks,
1: Rachel. I'm going to go and Charlie's going to come.
2: Yep.